Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschermann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. Today, we focus on U.S. foreign and security policy under a President Joe Biden. After the election, a common headline read, What does Biden's win mean for the world? So I called Cornell University Professor Sarah Krebs to talk about key challenges for the next U.S. administration, the crisis of NATO, and her research into what happens when U.S. presidents chide NATO allies for the defense spending. We discuss whether or not Trump and Biden differ in their approach to China, and finally, why military restraint might not be the new foreign policy consensus in the U.S. Now, I'm excited to welcome Sarah Krebs as our very first guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Happy to be here. <laughs> Sarah, we are recording this episode six days after the U.S. elections. So what was your personal recommendation? What worked best to deal with election anxiety? Uh, I would say copious amounts of scrolling through Twitter, which is maybe not uh, the the antidote that I would prescribe for others. Actually, I think what it really is, is, is staying t on top of news a little bit, but just getting out and going for a run or going for a swim, just something that would be kind of a, a disengagement for the 24-hour news cycle, I think is is probably a healthy dose of reality. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, Since this is the Berlin security beat, I gotta ask your opinion. What song best describes the current state of the world? I think one of the more timeless uh, songs that probably works right now is John Lennon, Imagine. Because I think there really is kind of this way in which we're at a crossroads and the future is something that kind of can be written and crafted based on someone's vision um, for what the world should look like. And so I think Imagine kind of captures that. Um, I was wondering, you know, as a scholar, a veteran, and a policy advisor, you have a unique set of experiences. Can you tell us a little about how these experiences have shaped your outlook on the world? Uh, so I think having been in government, been in the military, advised governments, um, and, but also now studying how governments work gives me a lens into both kind of the theory and the practice of politics and international politics. And so I feel like I consistently uh, check one kind of theory with my experience in practice to get what I, I think is a, a somewhat accurate lens into kind of how the world should work, how it does work, and the distinctions or differences between what theory says about how the world should work versus what how it actually does work. So I think that that gives me this perspective the academic part of international politics gives me a way to kind of shine light into the world and then know what to look for. And so I think that's the perspective that I can lend to the study of and the observations of international politics. Um, well, the, the Biden team has reportedly identified three C's, COVID-19, climate change, and China as the biggest challenges ahead. Do you agree with that list? <laughs> so I think that those probably make the most sense given both where we are in the world, that it's clear that COVID-19 is still a huge issue. Uh, 
but also kind of what the priorities are from the perspective of the democratic base, which is climate change has been such an important issue. Um, and then China is just almost so obvious that it can't be overlooked. So I think that those really do kind of address the three main issues. And I think it makes sense to kind of not try to take on too much, but to really kind of target a couple of big things. And I think that's actually something that the Obama administration did when it took office in 2009, which is its big thing was healthcare. It also took on the New START treaty with, uh, with Russia, but it just focused its energies. And I think the reason why that's important is that there's, there's an opportunity cost, that there's a finite amount of political capital that leaders come into office with, and they have to kind of use it selectively and deliberately. And so prioritizing three big policy areas, I think makes a lot of sense. And, and I think is, is consistent with someone who's been in Washington for as long as Biden has is just that awareness that you don't have unlimited political capital to distribute across an, uh, an infinite number of policy spaces. And I think those are the, the three most pressing issues for sure. Let's talk about NATO. During the campaign, Biden has said that one of his first moves as president were to call NATO leadership and tell them America's back. That's caused some to say, with Biden, NATO's going to be just fine. But if we think back to NATO's anniversary last year, there were plenty of reports saying NATO at 70, an alliance in crisis. Do you think that's still a fair assessment? Well, I, I mean, I think the question is what the benchmark of success for NATO is. And in a lot of ways, the fact that NATO is still around as a, an organization and I think is testimony to kind of its longevity and the durability of it, because there were international relations scholars that uh, Ken Waltz comes to mind, who said back in the early 90s that NATO's days weren't numbered, but its months, if not years, certainly were. And the fact is, here we are 30 years later, and NATO not only has survived, but kind of reinvented itself and incorporated new members. So if the prognosis that its months or years were numbered is the benchmark, then I think NATO has done fairly well. And I think the other sort of benchmark is, is to sort of be aware that NATO has had twists and turns over its 70-year histories. So I think there's a glass half full kind of optimistic perspective on the NATO alliance, um, but that I don't want to diminish the challenges it faces too. Could you talk about them a little bit? What do you think might be the core challenges? Well, I think one of them is that what comes with NATO, I mean, if we think back about 1999 and the Kosovo War and trying to decide targets and have these kind of vetted across European capitals, that was before NATO had uh, expanded even further. And so now every decision requires that these member states be a party to them and sign off on them. And so you really have kind of in this multilateral organization a a significant impediment to consensus because every country has its own sets of preferences and cohesion requires setting aside some of those preferences for the good of the whole. But the problem is this is something where, you know, all politics is local and the most pressing political issues that a country faces are often um, within its own borders and this supranational organization, I think, can often 
uh, be kind of a distant priority for countries. And I think that's why we see that countries within NATO, even though they have all kind of agreed from the Wales uh, summit to spend 2% of their GDP on national defense as members of NATO, very few actually do. And it's because countries have these trade-offs they have to make. And so I think that's kind of its challenge is, you know, you have this big collective action problem. Given this world of trade-offs, how do you get them to set aside uh, propping up their economies during COVID so they can spend more money on fighter planes? Uh, that, I think, is a, really, a, a fundamental tension of the NATO alliance. Um, and that always has been the case, and it's 70 years. So I don't think that's anything new. Um, but I do think that the challenge is not just of Russia, but how to think about the Pacific, how to think about China. And it's a assertive presence in Africa and the Middle East is a real issue that I don't think NATO has given sufficient attention to. Um, you, you mentioned burden sharing and uh, burden sharing has been, you could say, the transatlantic bone of contention and not just since Trump. But you could say Trump somewhat escalated the conflict when he falsely alleged that NATO members owed NATO money or that Germany was the worst offender. And during the campaign, he lauded himself for these attacks and claimed, I quote, our NATO partners were very far behind in their defense payments, but at my strong urging, they agreed to pay $130 billion more a year, end of quote. Sarah, you and two of your colleagues have written a paper on the issue called Transatlantic Shakedown. Does presidential naming and shaming affect NATO burden sharing? Do your findings um, support Trump's claim? And uh, if a Biden-Harris team were to read the paper, what conclusions could they draw for U.S.-NATO policy going forward? It's, I think, an interesting question. And the reason why we started writing this paper is that we were really intrigued by all of the rhetoric coming out of the administration trying to, as we say, shake down these allies for contributions. And the question was whether this actually works. Does this, what we call naming and shaming, cause these countries to say, you know what, we're going to now spend 2% on GDP, or does it cause them to continue what they were doing? And so we studied presidential rhetoric over the 70-year alliance, and we hand-coded statements and then used that to train an algorithm to identify uh language that's supportive of NATO and its contributions and language that was deriding NATO and its contributions. And we found that it does not actually elicit more contributions to shame them and engage in this sort of rhetoric of uh, humiliating NATO's, NATO for their contribution, NATO members for their contribution. In the paper, it even says the more negatively U.S. presidents speak about transatlantic burden sharing, the less allies spend on defense. But if shaming doesn't work, if it has adverse effects, why do U.S. presidents keep doing it? So we have this domestic politics explanation um, that I think is par fairly persuasive. One is that the U.S., we u found all these uh, public opinion polls on U.S. attitudes towards NATO. And what's really stark and striking is that the American public forever has thought that NATO members are shirking in their contributions. And so it's really kind of politically convenient for American leaders to use this to, to suggest that they're being tough on the allies. And so I think that's why you get American leaders continuing to use this kind of rhetoric. And we saw this even actually in the Obama administration, this uh, coming out of um, Secretary of Defense Gates, who 
continuously also said that NATO members needed to spend more. Um, and in fact, that's uh, the origins of this Wales summit was not a Trump agreement, but this was something that had taken place in the Obama administration. So this is not a new issue. Mm. Your findings suggest that if European defense spending increases, it's rather in response to growing external threats or changes in that country's economic situation. Maybe you could elaborate on the question why Europeans don't spend more in response to U.S. shaming. This comes back to the all politics is local kind of argument, which is that the European Union, or, you know, obviously there are differences between the European Union countries and the NATO countries, but there are a lot that overlap. And so not only do they have their domestic uh, constituencies that actually do not generally favor more spending on defense, but they also have in these cases where NATO countries are also EU countries, they have EU budget requirements that preclude uh, spending more on defense without cutting spending in other areas. And so all this sets up for a real mismatch between kind of what the U.S. president is asking them to do and what they politically are inclined to do. All right. Well, maybe we could spend a minute talking about what then should and shouldn't NATO do going forward. Well, I think this comes back to the three C's that you mentioned with the Biden administration, which is that uh, there really does need to be more attention now on China. Again, given its assertive presence in Africa and the Middle East and the economic and technological footprint that is affecting NATO members. And so this now, I think, has increasingly become this power play between the United States and China and Europe and NATO are really caught in the middle. And so kind of addressing that issue, I think, is really important. Um, and that has come up in the context of 5G, for example. And so I think that issue, compared to four years ago during the Obama administration, I think really has become a lot more salient uh, in 2020 and now going into the Biden administration. And so Biden and the Obama administration had been much more kind of had taken a more a somewhat more con conciliatory tack than the Trump administration. But what's been interesting is to see Biden kind of evolve on this issue of China. So uh, what differences and similarities do you expect to see between Trump's and Biden's approach to China, also with a view to the European allies? So I think that's something where it will be interesting to observe how the Biden administration, which I think will embrace much more kind of multilateral approaches, how it tries to lead and, and navigate that issue with European allies, because the Trump administration did a lot of this, you know, again, coming back to 5G, uh, threatening and, and imposing sanctions on countries, allied countries that would use Chinese uh, tech products or uh, do business with Huawei. And so uh, I would think some of that would continue irrespective of the administration, because some of these policies are really kind of deeper down into different parts of the bureaucracy. And so those parts of the bureaucracy probably will be continuity. But I think those will be big issues for the Biden administration and for the NATO alliance. So um, in, in the 90s, a popular buzz phrase was out of area or out of business for NATO. Do you think that's still the case? Right. And I think that is a reason why the NATO alliance was really able to survive despite kind of losing its uh, reason for being, which had been the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. 
So reinventing itself and kind of giving itself a new purpose. That, of course, was when the when Russia had really kind of been in decline in the 90s. But now I think it doesn't necessarily have to be that far out of area to confront what has been, I think, a rising or resurgent threat of Russia. But I do think some of the more salient issues are still out of area. Although, I again, I think some of these China tech issues are an interesting hybrid or amalgamation of different, it's not really out of area, it has to do with China, but the tech infrastructure is within Europe, within these NATO countries. And so it is kind of an intersection of both foreign and domestic that I think really is kind of interesting and hasn't quite been resolved. The reason I I raised the question of uh, out of area or out of business is also because during the U.S. presidential campaign, both candidates pledged to end the so-called forever wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East, where NATO is also engaged. And I was wondering if military restraint might be the new foreign policy consensus in the U.S. So my sense is that that's unlikely. And the reason I say that is because every time the Trump administration tried to withdraw from Afghanistan or the Middle East, there really was kind of this pushback from both sides of Congress and from the Pentagon. And so I think there are really kind of deeper seated forces of inertia that make withdrawal from these uh, positions much more difficult. So on the top of your head, what needs to change for NATO to overcome its crisis? Well, I think one of the first things that needs to happen is that the all of these countries right now have a, a pressing public health crisis. Uh, and so it's hard to kind of look outward while they're having to look inward domestically at the crisis that's within its borders right now. Because in order to engage in kind of keeping the, the world safe in these countries, they really have to kind of make sure everything is, the housekeeping at home is secure. And then they can kind of tend to these foreign affairs. So if those three C's are kind of these priorities, I would think that that kind of the, what Biden keeps saying is that U.S. leadership is back. And so that's what I would look for is that the Biden administration and its associated leaders will be talking to NATO counterparts about those three main issues. And I think that hopefully we'll start to make some more coherent headway on those priorities. One last thing. With Christmas coming up, um, will you tell us what books are on your wish list? Uh, so this is a good question. Uh, one of the books that I've been reading about but haven't yet read is called Isolationism by Charles Kupchin. And it's interesting to me because it and actually it connects so well to a number of the topics we've been discussing, uh, which is kind of U.S. involvement in the world. And he starts from this premise, I understand, of the Washington Farewell Address of 1798, which talked and kind of chided uh, against entangling alliances and kind of this concern that uh, we might be pulled into foolish wars by allies. And I think the premise of the book seems to be that there, that's been part of this U.S. narrative and our founding legend about kind of the 
historical prescription for a U.S. policy. And that there is kind of always this pendulum shift between deep engagement and isolationism. And that it's really a middle ground between doing too much and doing too little. Uh, and so I'm really interested to read that. And I would suggest that this might be a book that your listeners would be interested in reading as well. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. This was the first episode of Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at Hertie School in Berlin. You like what you heard? Subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out in December. <laughs>